0: There is a cacophony of dissent in the Republican Party.
1: Republicans should have stood up and said no.
2: I will push back against him. I will call him out when I think he's saying things bad for the country. What
0: is Trumpism?
2: The Trumpism is a bold and profoundly different way of thinking. Uh, You know, he is not a Republican. No, uh,
0: half of what Trump does is not okay. (laughs) And we're going to unify the Republican Party. We're going to unify it and make it strong. And we're going to win. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind,
1: And I'm Heather Cox Richardson.
0: This week, we're talking about the GOP and Trump. Are we finally seeing a break between the president and his party? Senator John McCain's health care thumbs down in the Senate. A dramatic moment. The firing of Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, the man who was seen as the voice of mainstream Republicans in the West Wing, have Washington Republicans, who, let's face it, never wanted Trump to be their standard bearer, decided they're better off in opposition to this president, that their fortunes and his are not only not aligned, they are diverging. Heather?
1: Well, so... I think it's worth taking a look at the fact that we are historically in an extraordinary moment. We are at a moment when both political parties are entirely realigning. It's chaotic. It's exhausting. People don't know which way to jump. And- The idea that somehow we can do business as usual so long as we can just move the man in the White House into one side or another is just wrong. We are rewriting American history right now.
0: The cards have been thrown up and they are all over the place. That's
1: exactly right. The Republican Party has to find a new way forward, and that way forward is not to cling to the old version of movement conservatism, which was the idea that you backed solely economic freedom and a limited government. Uh, Maybe I can't see the future, but I tell you, that's not the answer. What looks to me to be the answer is that we need a new kind of Republican conservatism that looks very much like Eisenhower's, Teddy Roosevelt's, or Lincoln's, the idea that somehow you have to come up with a fiscally responsible, socially conscious government that responds to the will of the people. And watching this happen, watching Lisa Murkowski, watching Susan Collins, watching even John McCain with his thumbs down movement moments saying, we are not going to be able to be the party of no any longer. We actually have to take into consideration that Americans want some of the things that we have said we're not going to do. This is the moment when parties on both sides are reborn and that people get to have a say in what kind of government we're going to live under. And I'm finding it Yes, tiring and all those things, but also incredibly exciting.
0: On that note, let's get to our guest, Senator Jeff Flake, Republican from Arizona. His new book is Conscience of a Conservative, a Rejection of Destructive Politics and a Return to Principle. He's a longtime critic of President Trump. Senator Flake, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Senator Flake. Is there really a marketplace for truth in Washington? You're experimenting with that as we speak.
2: <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I, I hope there's a marketplace uh, you know, in elections for, for those who write books, too. That's, uh, we're going to test that proposition as well.
0: People are going to be reading your book around America. How does that make you feel at this point, considering a book of a similar title that appeared some decades ago?
2: Well, I I uh this is an homage to the book that was written uh fifty seven years ago. Um, I, I certainly don't have the don't have the chops that uh that Goldwater had, but uh he he felt that the Republican Party had been compromised by the New Deal at that time. I, I felt that something could be said about where we are in our own times now, so decided to write it.
0: You know, Goldwater in 1960s, you now, those are very different times, those decades ago, from where we are today. In America stood astride the world in the 1960s, uh, way ahead of everybody else. Uh, the world caught up right. with us, and globalism then versus now are very, very different. Much of America feels left behind, disenfranchised. Those are significantly the people who voted for Donald Trump uh, wasn't he speaking to them as to how their lives really are? And isn't that why he wiped out a stage full of people who said some of the things you're saying now in the primaries?
2: I do think that he, he captured it uh, somehow, but the problem is, uh, you know, when you run out of populist message, uh, you know, you, it's called populist for a reason. You, be popular and, uh, you say things that people want to hear it's easy for a politician to point to a shuttered factory and say, ah, free trade did it. Um, those Chinese, or those Mexicans, they're the reason. And uh, all we need to do is void those trade deals and you'll have your job back. And that's essentially what was being said. And uh, that sugar-high populism uh, is not a governing philosophy. It really isn't.
0: The issues now are not just the future of your party but the future of the man at the top of this pyramid leading your party as president. Let's hear from Barry Goldwater, your spiritual uh, father. Um, you know, Senator Goldwater is not just there in the title. He's there in many of the principles uh, that you've embraced. And, and here in this uh, clip, he's recounting the August 7th, 1974 meeting with President Richard Nixon Uh, Nixon meets with Republican congressional leaders, Congressman John Rhodes and Senator Hugh Scott. And they told him that he had no congressional support and that impeachment was imminent. Finally he said, well, what do my chances look like on the Hill? Well, I
2: said, Mr. President, if you have 12 or 13 votes in the Senate, that's more than I think you have. I think you've had it. John Rhodes told him essentially the same thing, and Hugh Scott agreed. That's about as far as it went. We, were, we had agreed that we would not say to him, you have to resign. Although, had it been me alone, I would have told him.
0: Nixon announced his resignation the very next day. What would Goldwater say to President Trump right now if he were alone in the room?
2: Well, I, I, I hoped that he would tell him that uh, he ought to hew back to what uh, traditional conservatism is. That's, uh, uh, that's what Goldwater preached and, uh, and delivered on.
0: You know what Donald Trump would say back to that, Senator Flake? Donald Trump would say, yeah, right, people saying like that were uh, one sharing the stage with me, and I wiped them out, and that's why I'm the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go straight mm-hmm. to hell. Uh, so w- let's take it into present tense. What would you say to President Trump if he were sitting here in the room, just the two of you?
2: Let, let, let me go back. I did have a conversation with him during the campaign. And, and, uh, and I, I said that I was the other senator from Arizona, the one that hadn't been captured, and that we shouldn't talk about, uh, you know, and th- those are the kind of statements I wanted to talk to him about. I told him that he shouldn't refer to immigrants from Mexico as rapists. Uh, He shouldn't refer to a judge born in Indiana uh, as a Mexican in a pejorative way and expect to win Hispanic votes or grow the party. So that's what I actually did tell him and the only conversation that I've had with him.
0: Is this a problem with how he is or what he stands for? Because there may be different issues in terms of Donald Trump.
2: I, I don't know. I, I can't uh, read his mind to see where he is. But if I had that conversation today, I would tell him uh, on the policy side that, uh, that one, he shouldn't uh, get rid of NAFTA. We yeah. ought to modernize it, but keep it. We ought to quit talking about Mexico paying for a wall because they're not going to. That's what I would tell him on the policy side. And on the, uh, the other part, of what this book is about, uh, as much as policy, it's about destructive politics. And we can't ascribe terrible motives to our opponents, our political opponents. And, uh, you know, we're all Americans. Uh, and that's what I would tell him.
0: Uh, Donald Trump might say back to you, I understand your positions on policy, but people win elections on symbol on emotion, on a sense that I represent you, the people. Policy debates are not what win elections. The question is, what makes for a good president? And right now, I think it's clear in your book that you think this man does not belong in the White House. I mean, it's in every line of the damn book.
2: Well, I I would say it's one thing to win an election, but the only uh, utility in winning an election is to pursue your policies once you win that election. And if he wants to be a successful president, he's going to need to work with the Congress, and the Congress is going to need to work on a bipartisan basis. In the Senate, we only have you know, so much that we can do under rules of reconciliation. I think we realize the limits of what Republicans do, can do as, as a party uh, just last week with the health care bill. So we've got to work across the aisle.
0: Do you think Donald Trump is destroying your beloved Republican Party?
2: I'm not using those terms, but I I do think that uh, the Republican Party is in a crisis right now, a crisis of confidence about who we are. And I, I was in the Congress from 2001 to 2006 when we had majorities in the House and the Senate, and we had the White House as well. We lost it, and we deserve to, given what uh, the behavior of members of Congress was in terms of rampant spending and earmarking and corruption. A couple of members going to jail. This drained the the swamp. You know, language was used by Nancy Pelosi quite effectively to describe Republicans, and uh, and we lost the majority, and we can lose it again pretty quickly if we don't govern effectively.
1: I'm interested here, though, in something that you keep saying. You've come out both strongly in favor of democracy and strongly in favor of Goldwater conservatism. And really, you also keep saying that people keep asking for programs that we can't afford to do. How do you square the idea that everybody should have a say in society with the idea that they shouldn't choose the things they're choosing?
2: Well, let me give you uh, an example of that. Uh, Direct democracy, or whether a member of Congress is a delegate or a representative Um, during the debate over the prescription drug benefit in 2003, uh, I voted against it. Even though it was pushed by the president, uh, President George W. Bush and the majority uh, in the house and the Senate, the Republicans at that time that allowed for government to subsidize prescription drugs for seniors. It added Medicare part D But it also added about $7 trillion in unfunded liabilities for future generations. And and I I just thought that that wasn't a wise thing to do. Had I taken a poll in my district, which included Leisure World, Sun Lakes, a retirement community, and and a bunch of other retirement communities, overwhelmingly, people would have said, we want this benefit. Uh, We want to pay less for prescription drugs. But what was my responsibility at that time to do? Was it to go to, you know, put my finger in the air and say, where are the votes? Or do I say, you know, there are a lot of people who can't vote now, kids, and maybe my grandkids later will be saddled with this debt. And then that, that so that, that that's the kind of thing we have to consider as elected officials. You can't always say what's popular and, and how to go with it. I think that's why the founders uh, were concerned about, you know, direct democracy. That's why we have a republic, and that's why we have representatives who who are supposed to look at the issues and, and to look out for the next generation as well.
0: Going back to those days when you arrived in 2001, of course, your kindred uh, and colleague uh, uh, was Mike Pence. There is actually yeah. a conservative in the White House right now, Mike Pence. Hi. Uh Tell us what a Pence presidency would look like, because you know as well as I do, there are people thinking about that right now. As how could they yeah. not?
2: Well, I, I, I let me let me just say uh, I admire Mike Pence a lot. I've uh, known him uh, since the '90s when we both ran conservative think tanks. He
0: speaks highly of you as well. At least he did.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I and I I just think the world of Mike and his family, yeah. um, and I, I think that he would be a a uh, good president. Uh, one, uh, he is, Mike is, as you've seen, just uh, uh, kind and generous to a fault. And I can never see him use the kind of language that's been used. Uh, and so I think that uh, in terms of demeanor and comportment, uh, then he would be quite a different president.
0: And uh, if he offered you the vice presidency, would you take it?
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm not not going there I think the world of Mike Pence
0: <laughs> the, uh, uh, Senator Flake we have thoroughly enjoyed talking about truth and power and politics with you at this key time it's going to be an interesting couple months for you thanks for having me on be well we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back And we're back. In Jeff Flake's book, he has harsh words for Tom DeLay, former Republican congressman and House Majority Leader from 2003 to 2005. Let's listen to John McCain, uh, Flake's kindred from Arizona, speaking about bipartisanship just in the last few days, about reaching across the aisle. And let's compare that uh, to what we can hear from Tom DeLay, DeLay's farewell speech in 2006 from Congress. Uh, and an amazing counterpoint to two different tonalities in the Republican Party, separated by over 11 years. A little bit of McCain, followed by a little Tom DeLay. Let's trust each other. Let's return to regular order.
2: We've been spinning our wheels on too many important issues because we keep trying to find a way to win without help from across the aisle. That's an approach that's been employed by both sides, Mandating legislation from the top down without any support from the other side with all the parliamentary maneuvers that requires. We're getting nothing done, my friends. We're getting nothing done. Partisanship, Mr. Speaker, properly understood, is not a symptom of democracy's weakness, but of its health and its strength, especially from the perspective of a political conservative. If conservatives don't stand up to liberalism, no one will. And for a long time around here, almost no one did. Indeed, the common lament over the recent rise in political partisanship is often nothing more than a veiled complaint instead about the recent rise of political conservatism.
1: So the thing about partisanship, especially on the right, really beginning in the 1980s, is that it's not actually legitimate debate. It seems to me, if you listen to why they are talking the way they are, in, for example, in DeLay's quote about standing up to liberalism, it's really important to remember that when people like Barry Goldwater, William F. Buckley Jr., Tom DeLay, Ronald Reagan. Talk about liberalism. They're not talking about Democrats. They're talking about Democrats and Republicans, both people that Newt Gingrich go on to call rhinos who believe that the government actually has a role to play regulating business. Republican
0: in name only.
1: Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Republicans in name only who actually believe that the that The government has a role to play in social welfare, in the regulation of business, in constructing infrastructure, things that were part of what in the 1950s was called the liberal consensus that was embraced both by Democrats, but also by Eisenhower, by Nelson Rockefeller, by what were known at the time as mainstream Republicans, now would be considered progressives. But... When they keep talking about pushing back against liberalism and the partisanship of that, their real central problem is that ideological problem. Americans like that. That's the way government works best. So in order to push back against that, they actually had to double down on – Uh, on sort of an extremist emotional partisanship that was the only way they could get voters to adhere to programs and adhere to them when they actually liked the programs of what they were considering liberalism. Look,
0: Buckley himself talks about a retreat from empiricism.
1: Right. He, He says we really can't keep making arguments because when we make arguments in front of people, they choose government programs, they choose liberalism. Again, with small L at that point. They choose the programs that we, as principled conservatives who believe in limited government and economic freedom, reject as almost commandments from God. Well, what's
0: interesting is even Nixon, of course, repudiated much of that. I mean, Nixon obviously embraced the Southern strategy, which is also called racism. But when it comes down to it, Nixon was a policy guy. He, he creates EPA. He creates block grants. He gets the teams in the room, says, what are the facts? We need to govern well. He
1: believed in empiricism, which which the ideologues who took over the Republican Party don't.
0: But there's a key moment for Ronald Reagan, which I think is crucial. David Stockman was the budget director under Ronald Reagan. Uh, He talked to William Greider, who was a reporter for The Atlantic magazine.
1: Much too much he talked to William Greider. You bet he did.
0: And basically he gave the foundation for what's called voodoo economics. He says, this doesn't work. This whole trickle-down idea, the taxes don't come back as advertised in terms of revenues growing because of of this burst of, of economic growth. And what's interesting is at the time, the narrative was just false. The view was that Reagan had Stockman come into the Oval Office and the language was he took him to the woodshed. In fact, what Reagan did is say thank you. You know, I'm surrounded by people not telling me what I need to hear. And after that, Reagan did trim back on some of those tax cuts because it would blow too big a hole in the budget.
1: He also raised taxes a number of times. There's
0: no doubt. But the fact is, Reagan was, at that moment, seeing the way the world really is, saying, no, no, that's not responsible. Now, as we go forward, we have George H.W. Bush, who is more a cousin of Reagan at that moment. You know, he says publicly, No new taxes read my lips, but ultimately he does move in a Reagan like direction and he does raise taxes.
1: And he also recognizes that this ideology leaves a huge hole in social welfare, and that's why he turns to the thousand points of light. He's trying to get volunteerism to step up for the programs that people want.
0: And then he's followed by Newt Gingrich in nineteen ninety four, who challenges Uh, Bill Clinton. And really, I think you've got the step forward that gets you to the foundation we're on now at that moment with Newt.
1: It's Newt Gingrich who purges the party of what he calls rhinos, Republicans in name only. And I would argue that those rhinos, the empirically based Republicans who were looking for a compromise between their vision and the Democrats were the real Republicans. It was Newt Gingrich and his ilk that were the rhinos, the movement conservatives who were coming in to take over an established traditional noble party and turn it into a group of ideologues. Right,
0: which gets you right up to George W. Bush with the well, obviously the famous quote that was said to me is that people like me and frankly people who are traditional Republicans. Uh, are members of the reality-based community. And that's not the way the world works anymore, Ron, says an aide to George W. Bush. And in a way, that's the debate between reality-based thinking and movement conservatism that was raging as what we even then called a civil war in the Republican Party. That civil war has now exploded in full. In the 12 years, 13 years since.
1: But in those 13 years since, the Republican Party has purged an awful lot of people who were willing to look at facts in favor of ideologues with threats of primarying them, threats of throwing them out of the party, unless across the board they towed the line. Even Jeff Flake, um, you know, on Twitter yesterday, people were saying, you know, he's not a real Republican. You know, we need to throw him out. We need to get rid of him. He's always been like a Democrat. Anyway, and he votes for the Republican Party, what is it, 94% of the time?
0: Yeah, 93.5%. Look, the the core issue here is that Donald Trump did, in an electoral context, size up exactly this deep fissure we're talking about. And he played it brilliantly. Now the problem is, what do you do when you have power? And this man is clearly unsuited for this office, which Jeff Flake says in virtually every page of his book. The question now is, will this book be the Bible? Of what will grow into an actual repudiation by the Republican Party as Barry Goldwater ultimately carries like a dead fish to Richard Nixon to say, sorry, you don't represent our party. You're out. This won't work. And it's time for you to leave this high office.
1: Well, I think if you look across what happened over the last week. You see that 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 moment has come, that the break happened about a week ago between the the Republican Party and Donald Trump, people turning on him within Congress uh, with John McCain's vote no on the health care bill. Uh, military officers saying they would not carry out his tweets as an order about transgender in the military. You know, there's a whole li- list of things that happen. But there's a, that's a different question than what's going to happen to the Republican Party. This is the moment for the Republican Party to reform with a new kind of conservatism that harks back to its great traditional strengths. And I don't see Jeff Flake being the guy to do that.
0: Well, look, it, it may only happen in the wake of disaster.
1: We are in a crisis. Uh, 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 You know, this is not business as usual. It's a crisis that I happen to believe we're going to come through. And you're right, it could get a lot worse.
0: You speak of crisis. Hasn't the Republican Party been here before?
1: Well, actually, the Republican Party came out of a moment that looks very much like today. And what happened was that in the 1850s, the southern white slave owners took over the Democratic Party and started to use the government really to consolidate power within their very small proportion of the American population, about 1% of the population. So increasingly, they argue that they should have the right to move their slaves and their system of slavery into the American West. And the problem with that was that if slave owners took over the American West, what that would mean is that their labor would undercut free, white, hardworking Americans, men, and they would not be able to settle in the American West. And the reason that that was a problem for people who didn't care one way or the other necessarily about the lives of African-Americans was that if that vast American West became dominated by slave owners, they would put in new states, they would get new senators and new representatives, and it was only a question of time until what was essentially an oligarchy took over America altogether. So people like Abraham Lincoln and other men like him, men who were from poor backgrounds but were trying to work hard and rise, said no. No, that's not what the government is supposed to do. The government is supposed to make it possible for hardworking men to rise, to prosper. And they organized, as the Republican Party, to take back the government and to make it serve not just an oligarchy, but to serve democracy.
0: Yeah. When I covered the Bush administration, what you saw was an internal conflict that was never resolved. They wanted things, but they never wanted to pay for them. You know, here you've got two big giant things that many conservatives, old rock rib conservatives, don't like. One was no child left behind. And what that was saying is that the federal government should really oversee education and should take responsibility. And no child will be left behind. That's something a lot of conservatives said, no, no, that's not what you want to do. That's a Rooseveltian style idea. And that's going to mean lots of boundaries that are crossed in terms of what you are now obligating us to do. The other side of it was the prescription drug mandate, which said the government will cover a vast expansion of coverage uh, for prescription drugs. Nowadays, uh, Jeff Flake calls a $7 billion unfunded mandate. Look, the bottom line is that they wanted these things, but they never wanted to pay for them. The signature quote from that presidency, one of them, is after they won the midterm elections in 2002, and Paul O'Neill, the Treasury Secretary, and Dick Cheney are talking, and they're trying to push through Cheney and Bush a second big giant tax cut for the wealthy, very similar to the prescription drugs, a big, big giveaway of money they didn't have. And uh, and Paul O'Neill says to him, oh, Mr. Vice President, these guys have known each other for 30 years, that's just unconscionable. I mean, we'll blow a hole in the budget. Our grandkids won't be able to pay. And Cheney says famously, Reagan proved deficits don't matter. We won the midterms. This is our due. What's that about? That's about power. We won. We have the power. We're going to take every license to exercise that power. Policy, that's for later or for never. That is exactly the separation that has gotten the Republican Party into trouble. They they want this thing. Yeah, prescription drugs, and, and you're going to like that, and that'll get us support. But they never wanted to pay for them. That's the hard part.
1: Well, that's always the problem that they've had between image and reality. They have sold the idea you could have things without paying for them. And the rubber is finally meeting the road, and we're discovering that, hey, you can't.
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, there's no doubt Senator Flake stepping up here is is something that has caught the imagination of a lot of people. Uh, the question is, will truth... The truth he offers. And he does offer quite a bit in that book. Let's be let's be clear. Hey, it
1: took courage to do that. He, did. he I'm, did. I'm disappointed that there wasn't more to look forward, uh, more looking forward in it. But that took a lot to do. Look, we always to keep your mouth. We shut.
0: always end up here at the end and say there's not many policies in there. I don't know what I do now. How do we move forward? But the fact of the matter is he did call out Donald Trump as a Republican to say, guess what? This isn't working. You are essentially not my president. And the question is, will other Republicans follow him to a point of action in terms of Donald Trump or will they slip back? Will this pass in 48 hours or 72 hours of news cycles uh, and Trump will will carry it to some new place in the ways he always seems to?
1: I don't think they can ignore it. I think this is the kind of book that will end up at least being a footnote in American history.
0: On that note, Heather, thank you.
1: Always a pleasure, Ron.
0: This is Ron Suskind for Freak Out and Carry On. We'll see you next time.
1: If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook
0: and Twitter at Freak Out, Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash our email address is freakout and at WBUR.org. Our
1: show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Katherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Our intern is Chris Yulian. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.